0: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue and the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. This week, what does the West's new era of big government mean for the future? Plus, are Britain's tabloids losing their nerve? And finally, as we enter the third COVID wave, is it time to look again at our culture's attitude towards death? First up, in the 1980s, Reagan and Thatcher were united in their support for an era of small government. 40 years on, and it seems that the current president and prime minister also share a vision for the role of the state, but it's one of big government and even bigger spending. Our political editor, James Forsyth, writes this week's cover article about this shift and the reasons behind it. He joins me now with Kate Andrews, The Spectator's economics correspondent. James, you start your cover piece by quoting a line from Ronald Reagan, Uh, and I'd like to start this podcast by quoting another. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It seems that for Joe Biden and Boris Johnson, those words are not quite so terrifying after all. What do you think is driving them towards big government and big spending? Covid has essentially led to a wartime-style response from government.
1: And I would also suggest a kind of wartime-style response from the electorate. People wanted the government to be there for the government to do things for them. And uh, you saw the government paying, uh, in this country, millions of private sector workers' wages. I think Kate will correct me when I go around, 12 million, I think, giving grants to businesses to keep them going and i think the public accepted with uh, far more willingly than i think any of us would have expected frankly 18 months ago instructions to stay at home to not do this not do that and i think in the same way that world war Two uh, led to an expanded government on both sides of the atlantic the covid crisis is going to do so now you can argue that over time, government steadily becomes more inefficient. And in some ways, you can see Thatcher and Reagan as uh, a backlash against the government that had emerged from the post-war consensus. But I think right now, the public want government to do things. And politicians are quite happy to spend the money, seems to bring them popularity. And I also think that we are dealing with a different set of problems which makes people feel that government spending has more justification to it than before. You know, you've got the demographic pressures of an elderly population. You've got the fact that one of the issues kind of, destabilizing politics you could argue on both sides of the Atlantic is a sense that some places have been left behind so what are you going to do to to kind of bring them forward and then finally you you have the question of China and you know how do you respond to this new great power threat you know there's you know belief that you need a push for technology that means more government money on research and you need a, a bigger stronger military so that means more defense spending so I think all of these forces are coming together
0: to push towards a bigger state. Kate do you think the Tories have got this right?
2: Look, you're going to struggle to find an economist on the left or the right who thinks that spending a lot of money during a public health crisis was a bad idea. this is the moment where where government comes into its own and you know you have to take crazy measures shut down the economy keep people at home you're going to have to spend a lot of money. The problem for the government is what was happening before the crisis and what's happening now. So before the crisis you know you had the OBR already setting out its forecast showing that in a few decades time we already weren't going to be able to fund the promises that we were making to people around health care pension and all those liabilities that the money just wasn't going to be there and Nobody wanted to confront this or admit to it. We were just going to muddle along until this came to a head. Now we're coming out of this crisis, the second major crisis that we've had in 12 years, not a huge period of time. And these problems have been accelerated. I mean, we have a much bigger queue in the NHS, for example, now estimated to be 5 million people waiting for their surgeries. You've got thousands of children that have dropped out of school altogether, you know, countless that have fallen behind we have some real problems on our hands. And the Bank of England, which has been printing money like there's no tomorrow, making it possible to fund these emergency measures, is not going to fund the government's day-to-day spending. It's not going to go on like this forever. And I think the problem that Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson and maybe even Joe Biden are going to have is is several actually number one when the money eventually does get cut off where are they going to find it the tax burden in the UK is at a near 70 year high it is really difficult to see where you're going to keep finding the money Rishi Sunak's going to try by raising corporation tax in a few years time but we actually don't know how that project's going to play out in the 2010s a lower tax rate actually led to higher revenue and then they have problems out of their control I mentioned Joe Biden who's um, splashing the cash in America. Um, If that has an effect on inflation, and people are certainly warning now that it it possibly could, if we see inflation's and rates rise by one percent, that's an extra 25 billion pounds that the government has to find, find just to service the debt. We don't get extra teachers for that. We don't get a bigger defense budget. That's just to pay our bills. So this comes to a head in some way eventually. The question is whether or not the government is going to be able to find that extra revenue, whether or not we can push off some kind of inflation surge. But as I said, a lot of this is actually out of their control. So it's a very risky game, as James says brilliantly in his cover piece. Biden and Boris are gambling the West future on this very risky proposition. And, you know, some of it they can control, but some of it they can't.
0: I mean, on that gamble, uh, James, I mean, in 2019, Boris Johnson was beating down Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald by bigging up the, the free markets in the Commons and, and, and so on. And Does it seem now that the Tories and the Biden administration, um, perhaps uh, for that matter, are they rejecting principles of the free market?
1: Well, I think the free market has not had a a good crisis because uh, if you look at this, if you had said to me two years ago, the UK needs a strategy for medical gowns and surgical gloves and we're going to build them here, I would have thought you were some kind of crazed Benite. In this crisis, we found that National borders trump free markets. And you had even liberal democracies, let alone China, imposing kind of export bans on medical equipment and the like. And so I think this crisis has pushed people towards more resilient, shorter supply chains, greater domestic production. Look at what's happened to Japan. It has no domestic vaccine manufacturing capability to speak of, it's only managed to give a first dose to 15% of its population the UK government did something that I think you know if you were a free market purist you wouldn't like it said to Oxford University you know you can only partner with a UK headquartered company that will produce the manufacture the vaccine here I, I think that the caution that they displayed in that judgment has been more than vindicated during this crisis so those have not been good things for the free market add to this China you know again if you are purely picking on price you would pick Huawei to build your 5G network but given that chinese companies are not you know independent of a state in the way that we would describe a kind of western company as being independent of a the state there's clearly a risk to having them involved in their national in your national infrastructure so i think it is right that the free market has not had a good crisis i think there is an interesting question which is industrial policy in the uk has generally involved propping up losers rather than picking winners i think the vaccine development has given the British government great and perhaps an overstated sense of confidence that it can pick something and turn it into a winner and I think that that experience that kind of positive experience with industrial policy you know maybe the government has got overconfident about its ability to do that but I think you I think that is definitely one of the big things driving this shift.
2: Can I can I come back on that I I think the free market has had a fantastic crisis. So I think if you look at what the government has supplied and what the market has supplied, it would have been very painful indeed US style if the government hadn't set up say a furlough scheme and had perhaps done a stimulus check instead it's not to say that some of these government programs weren't hugely successful but it would have been impossible to be in and out of lockdown for a year without the market services that we've seen and the very fast way that they adapted if you couldn't get packages to your home if the food supply hadn't held up so that you could certainly still go to your local market and get what you needed frankly if we didn't have the entertainment that we now have at home and if we hadn't had businesses adapting to online and zoom and the rest of it we wouldn't have been able to do what we did i, I think that when you look at How the economy contracted in January compared to last April, we were back down in essentially full lockdown measures again, and yet it fell by a few percentage points. Now that's still a lot in normal terms, but the lockdown resilience that the private sector built up in such a short period of time is—it's remarkable. It's the private sector at its best. James, you mentioned vaccines. I mean, yes, there's plenty of regulation around it, but the Pfizer vaccine, which was pretty much conducted in a completely private manner, is the most successful one that we have. Without the big pharmaceutical companies, who I think are one of the major heroes of the crisis, we wouldn't have any of these. And back to supply chains, you know, if you had said to any of us in two years' time you're going to need a lot of medical equipment, we would have said, yeah, we're, we're not prepared, but I, I think that's just as much, if not more, criticism of government. Government cannot predict or foresee what it's going to need in the future, but it thinks it can. It thinks it can when it comes to the labour market and immigration. It thinks that it can it can make these assessments when they're investing in tech and future technologies. I don't want to be flippant about it but in the next crisis if it it turns out we really need whiskey and tree plants we'll realize that we don't have enough whiskey and and tree plants being provided in the market and this and the government will say we we need to uh, intervene. The point is that when you do have a shortage the market is actually the best mechanism to supply it to get things in and also to set prices. Um, So broadly speaking I, I think that the market has had a very good crisis. It's just that government thinks once again that if it had a bit more power, it could have controlled these things. And I think every opportunity it had to control things back in February and March in 2020, it failed on. So I don't know why we give them credit now.
0: James, you could take away from all this that the government thinks that the answer to every problem now, to, to every crisis, is to make itself bigger. I mean, is that the right answer? Does that not worry you at all? Oh, I think it's clearly not.
1: The, the state action can't be the right answer to every single problem. Um, Kate rightly pulled me out. Maybe it's not the market that's had a bad crisis, it's globalisation that has had a bad crisis. And I think, I think this is I think one of the things that is the question, right? which is, A, I don't mean the cost of government borrowing is going to remain as low as this forever. Secondly... I think we, we don't know what QE does. I think we, we, the QE was done after 2008, and it didn't cause a big surge in inflation that many people predicted. I think one of the reasons for that is that QE essentially went to repairing banks' balance sheets rather than entering into the normal economy. So I think we could be looking at a lot more inflation, in which case some of these big spending decisions look very different than they do now. I, I think that the big question is how do you get more growth? And I think ultimately that growth, you can argue that the government has a role in providing better infrastructure and more skilled workforce, but ultimately that growth has to come from the private sector. And that is, I, I think, the, the, kind of, the, the big question is where is that growth coming from? Because I think if you look at the obligations that are being run up and also, if you look at the demands coming down the track on government, which is, you know, the government has spent a huge amount of money during this crisis, but the after-effects of this crisis are going to carry on demanding more money. So clearing the backlog in health, education, the criminal justice system. I think, I think that what's happened in care homes will make people more insistent that politically there needs to be some solution to social care, all of which are going to cost money. And I think that I think one of the problems is that... For people who believe in a smaller state low tax solution where is the example in the Western world where do you point to that is doing this and say they're doing it well people used to cite for on the on the small state side of the argument you know Texas versus California I think the Texas energy blackouts have made that argument much harder to pull off you know it's clear that California has got problems it is losing lots of high-income taxpayers who are moving to 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 states with a with a lower income tax rate. But you know, Texas has got its own problems too. And I think one of the, the things that's going on here is that we are moving to this bigger state model but with no debate. And you look around, you know, where where is the place in the in the in the democratic world uh, which is showing that an alternative is, is possible? I think that we have we have moved to a consensus on this almost as quickly as we moved to a consensus on what the, the right response been austerity post the two thousand eight crash after the recovery. You know um, the, the, you know when you had Sarkozy, Merkel, Cameron, all pursuing kind of roughly similar fiscal policies. I mean, I think if you go back to kind of AJP Taylor, right before World War One. You know, people had minimal interaction with the state. Those two world wars, those two shared national endeavours created the modern welfare state. And I think in terms of the effect it has had on society and in terms of how people view the government, what the government thinks it should do and, crucially, what people think the government should do, I think mean, mean, COVID has been essentially a kind of another national collective effort akin to a world war. And in the same way that, the, that world wars led to an expansion in the size of the state, I think I mean, COVID... Will, I think the question is, how quickly does that backlash come? You know, it it took to 1979 in the UK, 1980 in the US for that post-war mindset to decisively change. I wonder how long it will take for this time round.
0: Thank you, James, and thank you, Kate. Next up, Rupert Murdoch has recently written down the value of The Sun newspaper to zero. Kelvin McKenzie, who was editor of The Sun from 1981 to 1994, has written for this week's magazine about where he thinks it's all gone wrong. I sat down with Kelvin earlier this week. Kelvin, in a piece he wrote for The Spectator last year, you warned that The Sun shouldn't move from being a working-class paper to a woking-class paper. Have things got better or worse since you wrote that?
3: Dramatically worse. Whoever read my piece, and they all read it, will uh, have decided we'll show him we are going to be so so woke and of course it's been a commercial disaster a newspaper as distinct from other forms of media is a personality that's what it is it's the kind of person you would we want to be washed up with on a desert island the idea that you arrive on this bloody desert island right and then you say i'm gonna to have to climb that tree to get some coconuts that somebody says to you Gee, I wouldn't do that. Health and safety, you know. And anyway, the coconuts are living and breathing things. We mustn't try and rob the animals of the coconuts. And they've got themselves in a bad shape. Now, the truth about the matter is I have no idea why they've done this. One of the reasons that they may have done it is to avoid controversy. Can I just say to them, to be in journalism without controversy, to be in... Tabloid journalism without controversy is perfectly preposterous. You will go bust even faster by avoiding the oncoming gunfire than if you run at it.
0: But if readers are abandoning the sun because it's adopted woke causes, and this really is hurting the bottom line, then I mean why do it? And and who's behind it? Who is pushing this stuff?
3: Well, I don't know. In some ways I don't really blame the editor. I mean, she came out of the entertainment's background, so she knows that show business sells. And I can't work out in whose interest, except possibly the management's, that everything's quiet every day. You, you t- uh, the, the whole point of producing papers is the writs are like confetti, everybody's going mad. It, it's fantastic, it's very enjoyable. As long as you're not a victim of it, it's very enjoyable anyway. And what do you make of Rupert Murdoch's announcement last week that he's written down the value of the paper to zero? Well, it's the reality of the business there's virtually no advertising and what advertising there is is at a price which is basically giveaway this is a business decision I had no idea what value was put in their books on the sun but now with a cascade of money being paid out through phone hacking at the news of the world and more disturbingly now the sun is starting to pay out because They've hacked into an XMP's mps phone bill. The money is just flying out the window and there is no money replacing it. It's a very, very sad moment. What do you think Rupert
0: Murdoch makes of this shift? I mean, if you had suggested, let's say, a green campaign when you were editor, I mean, how do you think he would have reacted to that?
3: Well, I think he would have reacted in a massively hostile manner. He, I mean, he could be massively hostile even over the price of peanuts. So I remember a marketing director wanted to spend some money on television. And uh, Rupert was very hostile to this. And uh, the marketing director, an Australian guy, very good, said, Rupert, it's peanuts. And Rupert said, yeah, I know, they're my peanuts. <laughs> and therefore, you know, he's across the detail of this. Why he has allowed his newspapers, because even although he only owns 12% of the company, after 60-odd years of running the business, this is him. How he's allowed this to happen, I don't know. We have the ridiculous situation where working-class, predominantly white male readers are being fed a diet of green nonsense or taking-the-knee nonsense or anything like that. They should be quite tough about it. If the situation
0: is that bad, do you think the sun
3: will still exist in 10 years? What would your prediction be? The print version, definitely not. Really? Definitely not. And by the way, that's not only true of the Sun, that would be true of quite a few papers. Now, what replaces it? So the Mail Online is a brilliant reproduction in its different form, digital form, of the Daily Mail. The Sun Online, I don't know what's happened to it of late. I think they've lost rather a good guy to the New York Post. The Sun Online is a load of rather... Poorly laid out. Poor content. They need to raise their game. It is about journalism. And if it's not about journalism, whether you like the journalism or dislike the journalism, if it's not about journalism, don't do it. Rupert, sell it to me. Or actually, give it to me with a dowry, which would be preferable.
0: So it's people playing it too safe is part of the problem, is it? And is that a freedom of speech
3: question across the industry, do you think? Absolutely. It is a massive, massive issue. So what mainstream media is worried about is what social media is giving it to them. Nobody gives their stuff. The bloody left haven't even got enough money to pay 65p for the sun. They've They've got no cash, right? They've got nothing. So what they've got to say is of no consequence whatsoever. It is just noises off. If you take it as a derailing, you won't do anything. And the other way to look at it is this. Okay, so mainstream advertisers look like those idiots at Ikea who now say they won't advertise in, on GB News because it doesn't meet their humanist humanistic requirements. Really? And as everybody now rightly points out, oh, they've got shops and they sell in Saudi Arabia and they sell in China. What the hell are they doing about that? My advice to every one of your listeners is actually you don't go there. Your kids don't go there. Your friends don't go there and teach them a lesson. They are a bunch of bloody hypocrites. So if I ran the sun, I'd say, I'll tell you what I'll do. I've either got a business or I haven't got a business. The advertisers are not going to dictate to me what paper I produce. I couldn't give a stuff about them. And if I have to double or treble the cost of my paper from 65p a day, if I have to treble it in order to rebalance it and the sale goes down, so be it. The idea of trying to accommodate retail when they're as as hypocritical as they are with Ikea, right? Well, not only Ikea, Grosch. And and I I see that guy who runs a bloody energy company. He runs an energy company, right, basically destroying the planet. And he's now telling us uh, that he's not going to advertise on GP News. Get real. Get real. I know that guy. Quite an engaging guy. Woke as you like because he thinks it's in his interest. He Probably lives in a huge bloody house. His probably energy bill is 28 billion. He probably gets it for nothing. Sick making.
0: Final question then, Kelvin, because you mentioned GP News
3: there a couple of times. What do you make of GP News so far? So I love the idea of GP News. Clearly, they've had technical issues, which I feel sorry for them about, right? And that will get better. They represent a section of the media. I'm in favour of it. I think relying completely on Andrew Neil is a mistake, right? I'm a big fan of Dan Wooden, and I like the idea of what they do. I congratulate them for the bet they're making. I was with Piers Morgan just now, and I didn't hear this. So he told me that he watched GMB. And then he went to GB News and he said, actually, in terms of their content, he actually preferred GB News, which told me one thing. He's been offered a job at GB News. Kelvin, thank you
0: very much indeed. So The Sun may have had better days, but are many of its problems shared by other publications? I'm joined by Roger Alton, former editor of The Observer and The Independent, and of course, The Spectator's sports columnist. Roger, what do you make of Rupert Murdoch's announcement last week that he'd written down the value of the paper to zero? Well,
4: it's an extraordinary act. I mean, I think you can, can sort of understand it. Part of the problem with the sun is that the numbers are going down depending a lot of money on all the hacking settlements it's a paper that's never had any the restructuring that has uh, happened to a lot of other papers which basically means you reduce what the paper is and you cut people and you reduce the cost and it's never really happened at the sun so the sun is costing a lot of money and so i mean that might be a kind of interesting device for you know news uk's accounting teams to be working through the, the valuing and nothing but my understanding is that um, kelvin's piece was incredibly well informed and, and within the organization and that the sun is in the sun is in a lot of trouble. But I, I mean, whether it's a woke thing, I don't know. I mean, I mean, Kelvin's point was that they don't don't use woke and uh, they've been ordered not to use woke. I don't know whether that's true. The green campaign. I mean, it's unusual for The Sun. On the other hand, I think you've got to say The Sun is perfectly entitled to be trying to sort of broaden its base and try and attract new readers. But certainly the media is in a whole heap of trouble.
0: Well, well, yes, I, when, when I spoke to Kelvin yesterday, uh, he spoke a bit about this trouble that, that all newspapers are in. And um, you know, he, he thinks that they're adopting a new approach and one that's too cautious and too afraid of controversy and that that's particularly... Bad four red tops. I mean, do you, do you agree with, with that?
4: I think that's an extraordinary interesting to say. It's one of the things I was, I've discovered when I talking to people the last couple of days that now increasingly, and it's very hard to quantify, senior executives on um, newspapers of which I'm very much not one, but w- would now be. Aware of the possibility of, if you like, a uh, a new media pylon and that this is a sort of a tiny kind of caution on what they do. I mean, nobody would ever, you know, say it's a bad thing to not run a story because you think it's wrong. Of course, if a story's wrong, you shouldn't be running it. But not to run a story because you think it might upset people don't you're anxious about a whole heap of twitter coming onto you i think is is uh, would be a mistake but i think some of that is a sort of consequence of what's happened in the last five or ten years with new media and it's not i don't think it's a particularly healthy thing but I, i'm a dinosaur and should be in prison but i mean the, the the sort of new caution will mean kind of an unexciting Newspapers, particularly, obviously, tabloids, and that will indeed then hit sales and advertising revenue and so on and so forth.
0: So if this is hitting the sales and the, and the revenue, and it is a lot to do with new media and this new corporate yeah. approach, I mean, what do you... Can you see a way out of that
4: No, Not at the moment. Also, and staff. I mean, there's a problem of the staff rebelling. If you think about the... I don't think Kelvin wrote about the Suzanne Moore episode mm-hmm. at The Guardian, where there was a lot of... Uh, young people objected to some tiny reference she made. I think in the trans debate. I can't quite recall. Yeah. I think it's in the trans debate, which is a sort of hot button issue on uh, new media at the moment. So, so uh, the editor, and uh, my view, I mean, uh, I know the editor is a very good woman. I should have said f off to the to the people who are objecting. You're, you go and write the paper and produce it. My job is to edit it. Uh, your job is not to edit the paper. And and kept Suzanne there if she'd wanted to. I don't think Suzanne's column now. I mean, this is. Is not far from a sort of model for anti-woke principles, far from it. But I'm not sure that her column exactly works in the Telegraph in the way that it was probably appropriate for the Guardian. But that shouldn't happen, staff rebelling. And there was another very interesting case in... You know, it's not the staff's job to do that in in on the New York Times, which is a sort of kind of outlier in terms of smug, uh, liberal wokery, but obviously a very good newspaper too. One of their very best reporters, a guy called Donald McNeil was used the the N-word in a conversation with a lot of young people on a students outing to Peru organised by the paper in a conversation about a film in which a young girl had used the N-word it was a film and this was discussed and he used that word because it was part of what the discussion was about they then returned to New York there was a huge uh, sort of objection McNeil, a man of exceptional distinction, has been there for nearly 40 years apologised and then later the managing editor said I'm afraid that's not good enough because 150 odd members of the news room said that's not good enough we don't want him here so he said uh, to mcneil the managing editor said to mcneil you've lost the newsroom but you're going to have to go so he went now the idea that you've got to sort of have the newsroom on your on side it, uh, is, it seems to me extremely dangerous and i think that's i mean the new york times is an outlier i think that will could start to happen here to a degree. I mean, I hope not, but it could do. And I think these are sort of big, big, big issues. I think there's an issue at the BBC at the moment over its reporting of the story about the COVID leaking from a lab. Which basically the BBC never reported or hardly reported because it was something that Trump had espoused, uh, so the BBC wouldn't do that. But it's clearly it's now a big story and hard- yes, and it's now edging towards orthodoxy. It's now edging yeah. towards the orthodoxy, and, and the BBC is now having to recognise that. And I know there are people within the BBC who are extremely anxious about that, and they would they would say, "Well, this is something we should have done," and are, are worried about it. I think that the BBC is a problem on all these areas. Yes, I mean
0: it sounds like you correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're very worried about freedom of speech and its future within the media in, in this current uh, current climate. I mean, and is that somewhat to do with advertisers as well? And this, this fear, I mean, I'm thinking particularly now of the news that advertisers are, are pulling out of GB News, for example. I mean, does, does that... I think this is a,
4: it's a stunningly serious development. And so I think the, this threat by some, uh, this organisation... Called uh, stop funding hate uh, to uh, campaign against GB News because they theoretically don't like what GB News is doing. Is utterly pernicious, and I think part of the part of the problem is, and I think this might have happened today with Vodafone. Um, the Vodafone hasn't withdrawn its advertising, and that some sort of a seventeen-year-old trainee working in the new media department got a call from Stop Funding Hate and thought, "Well, we better pull our advertising." So the thing escalates to a scale which it, where it doesn't really—it doesn't really exist. So I, I think it will probably go away. I hope it goes away, but it means it. But it does mean it can happen again. And once you, the problem with freedom of speech—you've got to have—if your freedom of speech, speech fundamentalist, you've got to believe that Stop Funding Hate is perfectly entitled to go around saying we don't like GB News and and writing to whoever it feels like writing to saying don't advertise but you hope that advertisers just like editors and just like publishers have the gumption and the balls to say go away we will we'll do what we want we have the right to advertise and to, to listen to and be broadcast that by whoever we want it's a it's a complicated issue but it's not not very nice
0: Roger thank you very much indeed my pleasure, thank my you my
4: pleasure
0: and finally the pandemic has forced our collective culture to face mortality So, are we handling it well? For A.N. Wilson, the answer is an emphatic no. He joins me to discuss his Spectator piece, along with Laura Spinney, a science journalist and author of Pale Rider, an account of the 1918 influenza pandemic, and Catherine Mannix, a palliative care physician and author of With the End in Mind. Andrew, I would like to start with a question that you raise at the end of your piece, where you write what has the whole miserable 18-month nonsense taught us about our collective attitude to death? Would you kindly summarise for our listeners your conclusion to that question?
5: Well, I'm a little depressed to conclude that it suggests we haven't, as a society, since the loss of religion and everything else, and also since the memory of war and really dangerous situations have faded, we haven't got any capacity to face up to the obvious fact that we are all going to die. And what this is really about is it's a crisis of none of us in modern Europe knowing how to deal with the fact of death. That's really what I've come to feel. And therefore, we're in a very undignified position. The majority of the British public, certainly, and I think perhaps the European public, would very much disagree with what I'm saying. They think you can postpone death indefinitely if you get a clever enough doctor. And they think it's better to be utterly beyond uh, using any of your faculties or uh, having a decent life. Uh, they think that is preferable to the possibility of extinction, even though, of course, death is an absolute inevitability, whether we live to age two or whether we live to 100. Uh, and thats it's been behind everybody's thinking up to this post-Second World War generation where we've all been pampered, where we've all had uh, antibiotics to get rid of any kind of illness. Uh, and along comes suddenly an illness which can't be got rid of apparently, and we fly into a terrible panic and we lock ourselves up. We would rather have a, a non-life than risk catching this disease.
0: Catherine, do you agree that our society's attitude towards death needs to change? And uh, and if so, what, what are some of the ways you, you think this could be
6: could be done? I think Andrew's absolutely right, that we've lost sight of ordinary dying and changes in life expectancy over the 20th 21st centuries have made us now unfamiliar with uh, the practice of the deathbed the practice of supporting people during their uh, loss of bodily function and their descent into dying so my work in palliative care over 30 years has been to work alongside people who discovered that actually they are now in a state where their illness is not going to be cured and what's really interesting is observing how freeing that is for people when that fight for immortality if you like or that belief that death is not about me it's only about other people is over people very much focus on the here and now on what's important to them in the present on what their legacy in terms of being remembered, of what their life has been worth. And I think that those are really valuable things that give people enormous satisfaction. And so returning to be able to think about those things, I think could be really, really useful for people.
5: I mean, one of the things I'm really pleased to be on this thing with Catherine about, Catherine, you've written so well about this, that uh, actually, although we dread the word death, let alone the fact of death, uh, and it's um, it's held up to us as the ultimate horror. What you've reminded us with all your work over the last decades and the things you've written and said is that when it actually comes to it, it's very seldom frightening or shocking to people. So long as we've got people like you around us uh, in hospices and places helping us to come to terms with it, it's actually release. Churchill told it God's greatest gift of the human race. <laughs> he should have known because he inflicted it on millions of people. But even so, I think there's a deep
6: truth in that. Thank you for those kind words. And I do think that you said two things that are very important to be heard together there. One is that there is a process of ordinary dying that for most people but not universally for most people, is not too dreadful. Uh, For most people, it's probably not the most uncomfortable day they've ever had by a long shot. But also, alongside that, you've commented that it's because there is good symptom management, not necessarily because they've needed specialists in palliative care. But we do have the wherewithal now to be, be able to enable people to be comfortable enough. And there's always another danger, isn't there, of leaping into expecting our perfection in whatever it is that we're looking for. To be comfortable enough to have our wits about us, to appreciate the people who matter to us, to finish the tasks that are important to us and relax into a process that is as biologically ordinary and extraordinary, if you like, as giving birth is. We understand the process of giving birth, but we've absolutely lost sight of the process of dying. Uh,
0: Laura, you've written a book, A Pale Rider, on the 1918 influenza pandemic, and I'd be very interested to hear how you would compare the attitudes towards death between then and now.
7: So I'm, I'm a little flummoxed by this entire conversation, I have to say. I mean, I probably share a lot of common ground with Catherine and Andrew about our attitudes to death and how we need to rethink our mortality. But it seems to me we are <laughs> missing a crucial step at the beginning of the conversation, so I'd like to take it back. I think Andrew's article is an absolute mess and a disgrace and the Spectator shouldn't have published it. Um, it his thinking on what is wrong with lockdown is so muddled and flawed that... Uh, he should be ashamed of it. He doesn't even mention, for example, the deaths that have been, the lives that have been saved by lockdown. This is a very nuanced and complex debate which he oversimplifies. And I'd just like to mention in that vein that over the last 15 months, I've spoken to three ...respected scientists who are trying to save lives in three different countries... ...all of whom have received death threats, presumably from people who've read that kind of claptrap... ...and one of them, Mark Van Ranst, who I spoke to just the other day in Belgium... ...the virologist on their National council, Scientific Council, is living in a safe house under p- police protection... ...so perhaps he should look at the facts before he writes such rubbish. I think before we come to the main question about our attitudes to death... ...we need to make a separation between death from communicable and non-communicable diseases... Um, So we are in a situation of global contagion, if somebody decides that they would rather not wear a mask, uh, not go vaccinated, go to the theatre, expose themselves to uh, another group of people who are potentially vulnerable, they're not just making decisions about their own life and death, they're making decisions about others' deaths. Um, and that's the big difference. I, I think that I'm probably in line with a lot of what uh, at least Catherine thinks, and um, perhaps Andrew too, on, on on death from you know the end of life in general. But when it comes to limiting other people's freedoms, and nothing limits people's freedom more than illness and death, I think we have to uh, nuance the conversation.
5: Obviously, if you went to a theatre and there was a, some disease, flu or this disease or some other disease, uh, was rampaging, rampaging, all the other people in the theater would also have taken the risk. So I don't really think that argument um, holds, nor do I believe, although you believe you three experts, that the case has completely been made, that lockdown works.
7: Well, it depends what you mean by lockdown for a start. Maybe you could raise your eyes from your Macaulay for a minute and look at what's happening in Brazil and India to see what the alternative might have looked like.
5: Well, of course, but we also don't, uh, I mean, at any moment, looking at Brazil or India, we'll be seeing people far less fortunate than ourselves in the West.
6: Can I make a comment here that actually lockdown or or pandemic contagion management is not only about avoiding death, it is about avoiding a, a catastrophic failure of the infrastructure of society where people, there are too many people sick to provide the infrastructure services, the utilities, healthcare, education, which in fact we, we eventually chose to close, supply chains, shops, food. That this is about how we preserve a society. And it's really, really important that contagion management, and, and Laura can speak to this really eloquently in reflecting on previous experience, Is not just about avoiding dying. It is about preserving society in a healthy enough state that it can pick itself up again afterwards.
7: Of course, I entirely agree. And the entire the the goal of public health is to the greatest good for the greatest number. You know, if you have a different definition of what the scientists should be doing at the moment, please suggest it. And, And when you talk about bossy scientists. I mean, the fact that you are 70s, as you write in that article and that you're in good health and able to string a few sentences together has a lot to do with what body scientists have done over the last century. So, you know, perhaps you shouldn't be so dismissive.
5: I don't believe you've proved the case that all this lockdown was necessary. And uh, the fact that, uh, that we've been locked up, and as um, Catherine says... Very much imperiled, the way that ordinary society is going along and destroyed the economy, ruined lots of businesses.
6: (laughs) No, excuse me, that is exactly the opposite of what I said. What I said was that contagion management locking down is to preserve the workforce in essential industries from being too sick to provide those industries.
5: Well, I don't think that any of this has necessarily worked. That's what I'm suggesting. And I'm, well, you... not, I'm not convinced that the numbers of people who die, whether in Brazil or in Great Britain, would have been very different if we hadn't had this policy. Of...
7: But how do you know? How do you know? No, but none of us know. But, but that's what we, 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 we model these things. There is, the point is, it's a nuanced and complex debate. But anyway, perhaps we should move on from that since it's not the main topic of the conversation.
0: I think it would be good to get back, because the main topic, I think, of, of Andrew's article is, is more of a cultural attitude than is a scientific question. or a question. Which is very
7: interesting, yeah.
0: And so I, I would like, if it's all right, to go back, uh, Laura, To, to, to I would like to hear a little bit about the, the attitudes towards death that you, that you found from, from your studies of the 1918 influenza pandemic and yeah. in contrast to or in comparison to views now as you see it.
7: Well, I think, I think it is really interesting because... You know, the world has gone through a major transition since 1918, in that at that time, infectious diseases, communicable diseases, were the major killer of of humans. Now they're not. Now it's much more the chronic diseases of old age that are not contagious, generally speaking. And I think that, so, you know, it was a very different world in some very fundamental ways. Life expectancy was much shorter. Of course, there were no antibiotics, no antivirals. There were vaccines, but in 1918, they were making them against the wrong thing. Generally speaking, making them against bacterial infections rather than the virus that causes the flu. I think um, it's also important to point out that, you know, it emerged that pandemic at the end of a world war. People had been ground down by four years of a different kind of death and were probably psychologically exhausted. But it was a world, just to put that aside for one moment, where you expected to die at an earlier age. You had death all around you. I think it was probably less frightening. And unfortunately, you, if you had a lot of children, which people did precisely because child mortality was high, you were not that surprised to see one or more of your children die before you. So it was a very different frame of reference. And I think that if this is what Andrew is mainly getting at in his article, and what Catherine is suggesting also, that we have lost touch with death as a part of life, as a natural continuation, and are just much more frightened of it now than I would entirely agree
0: Well, uh, I'm glad there is that that
5: point of uh, of agreement. May I ask a question? Yes, certainly. Of all of the three of you, uh, particularly of Laura, that being the case, is there anything we can do as a society, given the fact we all come from very different backgrounds, very different belief systems and so on, to get back to some of the frame of mind, uh, obviously much of The world of 1918 was a horror story to which none of us want to return. But is there anything we could get back to so that we we could accept what Catherine has told us this morning, that death is like birth. It's a part of human existence. And we ought to be able to live with it and learn how to do it wisely and kindly. What what should we be doing? Should we be introducing lessons in schools? What should we be doing about
6: (laughs) it? Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree. And... I think that we need to think about understanding death as, as a, a trans societal thing. So what can we do in schools? What resources can we make available for parents to support conversations that they also don't know how to talk about? What can we learn from better journalism? What can we get into things that influence people's thinking now things that influence people's thinking include notions like soap operas so soap opera deaths are almost ordinary almost always extraordinary and macabre and each of the British soap operas produces a little YouTube video at the end of the year of the number of the deaths in you know Albert Square or Coronation Street or wherever Coronation Street actually won awards for a story that they ran a couple of years ago about a young mum dying from cancer of the cervix. And it was absolutely beautifully done. And what they demonstrated was telling the truth and showing the poignancy and the sorrow and the hopes and the difficulties navigated, some of which were never resolved, actually makes excellent television. It doesn't need to be avoided. It can actually really, really persuade viewers We need to think really creatively, but we also need better reportage. We need better journalism. So those carefully negotiated decisions with elderly people who did not want to leave the familiarity of their care home to go to a hospital where their chances may not have been great, there would have been no familiar staff, no uh, contact with family and friends they were reported in the newspaper as left to die. And actually, they were often the culmination of very, very precise, careful, tender conversations between doctors, the person themselves and their family about what the balance of odds and the balance of preferences were for that person. Similarly, we've got this difficulty that we're not allowed now to move through the process of dying into the phase where all of our organs shut down and eventually, last of all, our heart stops. And then nobody comes and jumps on our chest without a particular certificate that gives us permission to die normally. Otherwise, it's seen as a cardiac arrest. Nurses have been struck off the nursing register for not starting resuscitation on a person who was known to be dying in their care, but didn't have the appropriate piece of paper that said, at the end of this person's life, don't commence cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So there's a huge job to do to rehabilitate the dignity of ordinary dying. And some of that is absolutely at the door of irresponsible reporting that was exacerbated during this pandemic. I
0: think we'll we'll have to to end it there on that note about dignity, which I think is a a very nice place to leave it. So uh, Andrew, Catherine and Laura, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read all the pieces discussed. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12 if you go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week.